everyone welcome to the abm voice podcast this is your host arun gopalaswamy i'm delighted you are here and today i speak with adam turina ceo and founder of health launchpad marketing consulting firm out of austin texas so they help health tech firms implement abm to get better results adam is an author speaker and a podcaster himself i'm so excited to spend some time today with him and understand how they go about implementing abm for their clients adam good morning and welcome to the show hello hi aaron nice to meet you and uh, thank you so much for having me on your show today thank you to thank you for spending some time with me today adam let's just get started by doing a quick self introduction i specifically want you to cover what you've written on linkedin right so you you're you mentioned that you're a recovering health tech entrepreneur talk us through the journey <laughs> yeah right good what is that um, you're recovering from oh yeah yeah ptsd is going to kick in so just a little bit of background about me i i spent actually about 20 something years in marketing but mostly working for agencies and, and a lot of that b2b in technology uh, but nothing in healthcare Mm-hmm. you're not even pharma and um not even life sciences but in about 2012 i was doing some independent consulting we had this sort of interesting kind of model for communications helping companies improve the way that they communicate particularly you know sort of internal communications and communications with partners and a friend of mine's a physician and he said you know the relationship between doctors and the hospitals is broken and they they're dependent on each other but because of the changes that were happening in the american healthcare system mm-hmm. it was creating a lot of disruption in the way that these two parties operated together and so we were doing so he said well why don't we go take your model your communications model and then see if it works in healthcare and so we went and did that and we we pretty successful actually in getting several hospitals to adopt it um and about 6 months into this we said huh I wonder if there's an app for this. And we started to think about what a really good communications application could look like in healthcare. And we then took that idea and we pitched it to uh one of our clients who is the CEO of a hospital in New Jersey, and he said, "You build that, I'll buy it." And so we went and engaged some developers and we developed an MVP minimum viable product. we tested it with some of his doctors and they loved it they said this is you know we're, we're really frustrated with so much of the technology we have to use but we love this and so that then became the sort of the the spark that then started a seven year journey as a healthcare software engineer bear in mind hmm. i no experience in healthcare at all in fact when i realized we walked into our first hospital customer we went into the hospital i hadn't been in a hospital for about 20 years at that point which is the last time i'd been in was when my son was born so i had well, no idea I mean, and it it is a, like a parallel universe hmm. the dynamics the economics are completely different the titles are different the issues are different and language is completely different and it it was a very steep steep learning curve for me but thankfully my physician business partner helped me navigate the healthcare market and i helped him navigate the business market between the two of us we were i think kind of a, a you know a, a a functioning unit um and so we we had a pretty successful run selling the application into about 25 healthcare systems across the united mm-hmm. states and 25 healthcare systems means 
you know, 60, 70 hospitals, probably about 50,000 clinicians, doctors and nurses on the application at its height. And then, you know, we raised money, we had partners, we even absorbed another company and changed the name. It, it became known as Unify Health. Um, and eventually we kind of got to the point where we either needed to get a massive injection of capital, like another 20, 30 million dollars to be competitive, you know, or we needed to, to, to sell the company. And so as a board, we decided, hey, we're selling the company. And so the company put up for sale and we went, we hired an investment banker and um, they did a pretty good job and they found us a buyer. And uh, now the company, the, the, the assets of the company, the software, which is still uh, still out there, it's still being used by many of the many of our former customers, uh, is owned by a company called Harris Health. But hmm. you know, I will I will tell you that. So the reason why costs are recovering is that it is not something I would do in a hurry again. You know, I love starting up companies. I've started six companies, but when I started the next company, you know, I said to myself, I want to do a services company because I don't want to raise money again. And I don't want to have pressure of investors on, on your back. And, you know, I want something which is sort of has a, from a cash flow standpoint, is easier to manage than a software company. And that's why I got back into my first love, which is, which is marketing. But the point about ABM is that, you know, I, I, one of the toughest things for me was that as somebody as a longstanding marketer, I find it incredibly hard to market to the healthcare market. You know, as I said, you know, the, the, the buyers are very different. Sales cycles are incredibly long and slow. And the number of people who are involved in the whole process, the buyer collective, is much bigger than it is in many other markets. And so, you know, I felt that the purpose behind, you know, I wanted to create a, a company with a purpose. And the purpose was to help solve that problem, which is making it easier or at least helping mm -hmm you know, companies that are struggling to sell to healthcare organizations develop a more effective way of selling to them. And so that was the idea behind Health Launchpad. Awesome. What's the friction point that you mentioned about the doctors and the hospital? So where does it start? Does well, a really interesting question. Um, so, you know, traditionally, the U.S. healthcare market has been, it's called physician-centric which is the physicians, you know, mostly until relatively recently, like the last couple of decades, were mostly independent. They didn't work for hospitals. They had their own practices. And the hospitals were dependent on the physicians to bring them the patients. So the physicians actually had, a, you know, they had this privileged relationship with the hospitals. In, uh, it was about 10, 15 years ago now, um, the, um, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act sure. uh, came in. Um, and that has changed the relationship because it, it, it changes the focus of healthcare to be much more patient-centric, to be much more focused on the needs of the patient and so, and also, and, and also what happens, so it, it, the, the, the economic impact of that is that the reimbursements that physicians get have gone mm. down. And so the physicians were suddenly gone from being the sort of privileged people to being like, well, wait a second, the hospitals are actually maybe, you know, they still value us, but not as much as they value the patients. And the other thing is, the, the other change that happened is, is that they were getting less money. And so... 
suddenly there's this sort of massive friction. And part of what happened was that hospitals then started acquiring the physician practices. And so you end up with this kind of messy situation of um, physicians who work for the, the hospitals who are even more disgruntled than the physicians who had independent practices. And everybody was complaining about not making enough money. And so there's a lot of, lot of tension in the, in the healthcare industry. And, and frankly, it's still there. Um, I, I just think it's, you know, it's, it's moved on a bit since then. So when you go and then implement ABM for hospitals, are the doctors, are, are they one no, of the I, we, influencers? Uh, no, we, 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 so when we implement, we implement ABM not for hospitals, we implement ABM for healthcare technology companies selling to hospitals. Got it. Right. So, Got it. so okay. what we, so you know, the what we're doing is is we're helping them figure out, you know, out of the six thousand hospitals in the U.S. Hmm. or you know, thousand or so payers, insurance companies, which ones are in market for what they sell. So, for example, if they're selling a um, piece of technology which helps them engage patients more successfully, so improve the communication and the way that they manage patients through the process, right. what we'll do is say, okay, of all of the hospitals out there, out of the 6,000 US hospitals or 1,500 healthcare systems, here are the 300 that seem to be in market for what you do. Hmm. And let's so then so then the next step is then okay who's involved in the buying decision so probably the chief nursing officer is is taking the lead because it's about patient engagement possibly the chief innovation officer and you know the CIO is probably not that involved might be involved later but the, maybe there's a VP of applications who's involved and then there are a whole group of influencers you know, there's probably about a dozen of them. And so we'll help the company's clients build out, you know, what looks like the buyer collective and then use that understand to understand what are their needs? What are the what are the issues that these buyers deal with? So how are they defining their problem? What solution options do they have? And then, you know, what vendors will be in the considered set? And make sure that, you know, figure out how do we position our clients in that considered set. And we'll use that thinking about the accounts, the buyer collective, the buyer journey as the basic foundation of an ABM campaign, a program. Mm -hmm. So that might include, you know, some yes. demand generation, you know, uh, it might include yes. some lead generation as well, using social selling and a lot of content. So is that would you say uh, doing what you do, right? So it's it's easier to to go vertical, right? You've chosen healthcare, right? So yeah. I think this is the first time I'm speaking with somebody who's actually focused on a particular segment or a vertical, yeah. right? And and how do you see um, what are the advantages, disadvantages? So I think you, you talked <laughs> about how the universe is yeah. like very restricted, and I'm thinking about right. Your clients, I think, since you go really deep and you have some information, right, because you've been engaged and trying to focus on the 6,000 hospital, right, which is your universe, right? Yeah. Maybe I'm filling the answers, but why don't you just 
uh, help me understand well, the... So it's interesting. So uh, I guess you're, you know, quite, maybe a, if I can just reframe your question is, is why choose, why, you know, be a vertical ABM firm, right? Why, why, why pick just, just healthcare? Hmm. Um, and I think the reason is, is that I picked healthcare first and then ABM. Okay. You're right. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story behind it, um, is, you know, when I first set out, I thought, you know, well, what do I know? So, well, I know B2B marketing and I know about hospitals and patients and I know about selling to healthcare. So I'm going to have an agency, which is a B2B agency and we'll do B2B marketing, and then we'll also do patient marketing, and we'll also do health debt marketing. And this friend of mine said, what are you, you talking, I was like, you're totally confusing me. And he said, by the, you know, and, and as far as your, you know, your own personal um, expertise is, you know, you, what you really, you know, the only thing I'd hire you for, this friend of mine told you, is, is your expertise in healthcare, so, and mm. healthcare technology in particular. So I'd focus on that. So, yeah, you're right. So I started with that. And then, you know, as I then, so, so we're a health tech, started being a health tech B2B agency. As I started that, I then realized that, well, B2B is actually ABM these days. Hmm. And that really my, my personal experience with my healthcare company had been much more ABM-like than sort of traditional B2B. Because um, we didn't have the budgets to do sort of like mass B2B where we're spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that's kind of how I ended up here. We're now in the fourth year of, of, of operation. And I think we're pretty well established as the healthcare ABM agency. Hmm. And so what we're doing very carefully is thinking about how we can extend out of, out of healthcare but without undermining what we're doing. And in fact, what, we do, what we've done to do this is we've, we've launched a second brand called Total Customer Growth. Um, and that, you know, the book, we'll talk about the book in a bit, I'm sure, but hmm. the, 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 you know, one of the reasons for writing the book was to give, give us credibility outside of, outside of healthcare. And so the whole idea behind, to, you know, one of, one of the, the ideas behind Total Customer Growth was to be able to launch a second business called totalcustomergrowth.com, which is not industry specific. Hmm. So how, how do you differentiate health launch pad, right? From a, a generic horizontally focused agency or a consulting company, like what advantage do you bring in? Of course you have well, experience in running your previous firm, you understand the buyer personas and all of that, but other than that, are there anything that you bring in that a gender generic type. That's it. I mean, and but that is something that is <laughs> that's really important because you know, as a marketer, if you're really stretched, right? Sort of chief marketing officer, VP of marketing, marketing directors, they're stretched. They don't have the time to teach the agency how to do their job, right? They expect the agency to know how to do the job, right? And it's hard. Healthcare is really hard. It's really hard to understand. And so with our clients, they don't need to teach us healthcare. In fact, we, you know, in some cases, we've actually had some situations where we've got companies that are, you know, in other industries and have expanded into healthcare or healthcare is a part mm -hmm. of what they do. And we've actually helped coach the marketing people on healthcare. We've taught them. We've, we've got all kinds of resources to help teach them. 
And so, you know, the decision is, is like, do I want to work with the biggest ABM agency? If I want to work with the biggest ABM agency, it's not us. But if I want to work with an ABM agency that understands healthcare, you know, you, you're, we're one of, a, one of a, short, a, a small group. I mean, there are some other big agencies that have a strong healthcare practice, sure. and I, but I don't know whether they've got the depth. Of, mm. and, and I know this firsthand because early on um, in the life of this company, I, I did a lot of work as a fractional CMO. And as a fractional CMO, we actually, we actually hired an agency, an inbound agency, uh, with a very I mean, a, a fantastic reputation. And they said they had some healthcare experience. And we were so frustrated working with them, we fired them within 90 days. In fact, we, fired, mm. we, we made the decision within 30 days that we realized within 30 days we'd made a terrible mistake. And it wasn't just that it was, I had to teach them healthcare. It was just when you teach it, they didn't take it seriously. It's like you, they just didn't get the difference, the nuances. And I found that incredibly frustrating. And in fact, one of the reasons why I went from doing fractional CMO work, which is what I was doing in the first year, to building an agency was, was like, I, I couldn't find an agency that would suit, you know, suit our needs, frankly. Hmm. Interesting. So earlier in the conversation, you talked about how you identify in-market accounts, right, for your, your clients, customers. Yeah. How do you go about doing it? Well, it's, it's all about buying signals, right? So, I mean, the first step is trying to apply a di discipline in account selection. And to be honest, a lot of companies don't have much discipline, right? They just sure. say they pick the largest accounts or they just go, we're going for the complete market and we'll segment them based on size. So, you know, the first question we'll ask is, you know, is there a way to identify what a best fit customer looks like for you? So that's kind of the first filter. Then when we're specifically looking for in-market accounts, we'll use different sources of data. So intent data is the, you know, is the, but there are three types of intent data. First party, second party, third party. First party is data that happens on your channels. So on your website, you know, and, you can, and there are tools that you can put in place to identify some of the accounts that are hitting the website whether they register for something, register for an event, for example, that's first party intent data, or engage with you through social media. So that's, that's one, one bucket. Second party intent data is things like G2 and Captera, who are, where, where um, they will, you know, specifically, people come to those websites to do comparison shopping. And so that's a fantastic intent signal, particularly for mid to lower funnel. And then there's this whole wonderful world of third-party intent data. Um, and, you know, just for anybody who is, who's not familiar with it, you know, what in, the, there are different ways of gathering intent data. But essentially what intent data companies do is that they aggregate buying signals across the internet and then organize them in a way which helps you identify who might be in market specifically for what you do. So, you know, there's the leading companies are companies like Bombora and Zoom Info has very good intent data these days. And then there's Intentive from Netline and, 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 and. There, there are, it's, you know, and then a lot of uh, big media companies now have their own intent data. So that whole area is, is exploding. I will say one thing, which is none of it is perfect. Right. 
uh, it is it is not it feels like magic because it tells you <laughs> who's in market, but it's not perfect and it can be deceptive. So, for example, with one of our clients, we um, switched on intent data with their SDRs. And in the first week, they identified an in-market prospect and got, an, got into an RFP process that they didn't even know about within a, within a week. And so mm. that was like magic. It, it, it isn't, it, that, that doesn't happen every day. However, right. what, we also, what we do find is that, you know, we work with other SDRs. We'll show them, we'll, we'll provide them with lists of like, look, here are the in-market accounts. And we are seeing a better conversion rate with those accounts than just purely cold accounts. Hmm. The way I would characterize it is it's a bit like card counting at blackjack. Hmm. You know, if you're familiar with that notion, which is, it's not, I, I'm not a gambler and I, don't, I know how to play blackjack, but I don't play it. But I'm familiar with the notion of card counting, which is you sit there long enough at the table that you can start to work out the odds of what card's going to come up. Right. And so it doesn't mean you're going to win every hand, but you're going to win over the course of a night, you're going to win more hands. And that's hmm. what I think the value of intent data is. It improves your odds of conversion. It's not perfect. Hmm. But in general, for uh, fintech, because your clients are targeting hospitals, right? So hospitals, right. maybe in some cases, uh, doctors, for example, right? And some of these audiences are not really digitally present, right? And I think... There are industries like pharmaceuticals. I don't know where healthcare fits in, right? Are the intent data, especially well, third-party intent, it's, right? So does it work? Yeah, they, they, they are, yeah, so first of all, we're not targeting doctors. You're um, not, okay. No, we're not. Because uh, hmm. they're not the, typically the buyers. The, the only doctors we might be targeting are the chief medical officers right. or, the sort of, or, the, or, the, or, the, or the clinician execs. And, what we're, um, and the mindset that we are targeting in them is not a physician mindset. It's a business mindset. Sure. And so they are on LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn is, we find, is quite effective. The really bizarre thing is, is that, you know, you can see a LinkedIn who is engaging most with the ads. And we, we get the highest engagement rate with chief nursing officers. Hmm. Um, hmm. And um, so they are there. They are, um, they are what? Administrators? Chief nursing yes. officers. Yeah. Oh, She's okay. So they are, you know, they, they are nurses who have become basically they are the department heads for nursing. Hmm. Um, and but they are, you know, they're clinically trained and came up through the nursing ranks. And so they are they are present. And if they are, you know, involved in a buyer collective and the committee, right, the buyer group, yeah. they will be out searching and researching. And so you can get them across all of these different different channels. So mm. I couldn't say whether it works better in other markets than it does in healthcare, but we find that it is effective in healthcare. That's good. That's that's good to hear. And uh, the in, in terms of let's say you acquire a health tech client, right? So what's the process that you follow? And I think you ta just talked about okay. helping them acquiring the best fit account to start with, right? So. Uh, yeah. Essentially, a small part which is in market account, and then maybe another set of buckets. But you also help in demand chain, right? So talk us through the process in terms of how oh, we approach. Okay. So, you know, we have a process. We call it the ABM playbook, and it's a systematic process. It's collab done collaboratively with our clients. And so, you know, we'll start off by doing, you know, level setting and goal setting. What does mm -hmm. success look like? You know, in the next ninety days, what does success look like in the next? 
365 days. What does success look like in three years? You know, that kind of way of setting. So at least you can understand it's like, what are the goals that they're trying to trying to achieve? Hmm. And then, you know, we'll go through a segmentation analysis with them. And it starts out with the analytical, right? So it's understanding which segments of the healthcare market um, they want to go after. And, and one of the things is, you know, we've got a lot of data on this. In fact, if you, if you Google healthcare provider segmentation with a number one search link that comes up, because we've written several, a lot of, a lot of content on this, and particularly a white paper, which I think is the only one of its kind that segments the provider, the, the, the healthcare market in a way which is really helpful for marketers. And so they might say, you know what, we're only interested in the uh, hospital market. And they say, well, which hospital market, which size? Because, you know, there's a big difference between a small rural hospital in the middle of Idaho and, you know, a large healthcare organization based in New York City. Massively different. And so what we'll do is then go through this segmentation exercise with them. And quite often, particularly for companies early stage, we go for what we call the Goldilocks hospitals. Mm. They're not too big. They're not too small. You know, they tend to be sort of regional healthcare systems and they're actively buying. And they're, they're usually, they've got big enough budgets to be able to buy large systems but they're not so huge that it's that the sales the sales cycles are going to be short relatively short and relatively short in healthcare means 9 months. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Um, cool. yeah. So and so that's the sort of you know that that's the initial stage of how we go through the segmentation. And then you know the next step is then so who's involved in the buyer group? So we have a whole system for identifying the buyer collective. And what we're looking for is what we call the maniac with a mission. So who's the person who's like a change agent within the organization who's going to be most responsive to the marketing and is going to initiate the process of getting our clients engaged to at least, a, at least an initial conversation. And that's, you know, Quite often that is the champion, right? It's the champion. Yeah. But there are also, there are other folks, right? So there's the decision makers. There may be an economic buyer. There may be, you know, a key influencer who's really a decision maker. There's multiple influencers. So we map all that out. That's the, the next, that's stage, you know, call it stage three, right? So one is goals, two is segment buyer segmentation, and three is the buyer collective. Now, stage four is where it gets really interesting because this is where we build out a buyer journey. Hmm. And we have a very detailed methodology around that. And the way that we think about, so, you know, traditional marketing methodology is awareness, interests, you know, ADA, decision, action, which is fine. You know, it's tried and true, but it reflects us as marketers. It doesn't reflect how buyers buy. That's right. So we think about this in terms of the way that buyers buy. So the way that buyers buy is step one is we've got a problem. We need to think about the problem and we need to define the problem. Step two is defining the solution. And that's inter- the interesting thing is, is that that's actually where they have the biggest problem. They're not, by the way, at that stage, they're not looking at vendors. They're thinking about, should we go outside? Should we build it in-house? Should we do it through partnerships? 
which can we just use our existing technology, which is actually usually where they start with, right? And then step three is vendor evaluation. And then step four is decisioning. And around each one of those steps, we go through and think about what are the key issues that they have at each grid? What are the questions that they have? What are the triggers that start a process? We use, um, and if a client will let us do it, we'll go out and do customer research on that. So we'll interview their customers. We'll interview prospective customers. Um, we'll use lots of different types of third-party da data to inform that buyer journey. So that's actually, it's like the heaviest lifting in the whole project is on hmm. developing the buyer journey. Hmm. Once you've got the buyer journey, the rest is, you know, is built off that foundation. So the buyer, the content strategy addresses the buyer journey. So you have content, which is designed to help them with problem definitions, content, which is designed to help them solution definition, vendor selection content, decisioning content, and then a tactical framework underneath that to get that content in front of the buyers at the right stage. So that might include, you know, LinkedIn advertising. It might use programmatic. It might include arming the SDRs so that they have the right content to use at different and the different at the different stages of of the buyer's journey. And so, again, everything is informed by the buyer journey. Hmm. Excellent. It's quite elaborate. I'm wondering. So your sales cycles, right? So for your clients, is typically you said starting with nine months. I'm assuming it could easily be double, right? So how do you keep a prospect engaged? So content for sure, right? But in terms of day-to-day -day workings, right? So how granular, let's say the, the mapping document or planning that you talked about, how granular does it get? And what are the different channels through which you engage? Do you run like physical yeah. events and things like that? Oh, everything. I mean, it's hmm. so once, once you've got a buyer, a, an account, identified as being engaged in market and engaged so by the way we also you know that part of this is once we're running the campaigns is how we actually right. measure measure the effectiveness of it and frankly more importantly track accounts as they move through the process and so you know that means that early on you're identifying the 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 accounts that seem to be more engaged and the accounts that you're able to get leads with mm. and then how are they they qualified and so when you get to that sort of stage where you're nurturing a relationship, at that point, to be honest with you, we're more, you know, we're, we're more moved into a, you know, less of the driver mode and more in the sort of backseat mode of supporting the salespeople. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's for example, there, and there are things that you can do, right? So for example, if you know that you've got a big event coming up, you know, a big trade show and you're going to have a, a booth there and maybe a, a sponsor, um, what can you do? To, with the with the accounts that are seem to be most engaged but haven't yet you know got it become a, a clear and identified opportunity how do you get them to actually talk to you and, and schedule meetings at the events and there are lots of different tactics you can do so one of the things that we're starting to experiment with is geotargeting so for example doing programmatic advertising at an event so that the uh the, the specific targets that you're trying to reach get an offer or, you know, um, uh, so a message targeted to them to try and get them mm. to come and visit you at, at the event, at least make you aware of why they should do that, right? Correct. So th the traditional ABM tools and platforms, does it work good? Uh, if not, like, are there any special, special consideration or anything that you sort of miss? 
when it comes to tooling? So the ABM tools, I think the value of them is, so you can do ABM manually, right? You can do it, but it's very hard work and it's really difficult, particularly over long sales cycles to Hmm. kind of keep keep the continuity. And so the value, you know, I think the value of the intent of the ABM tools is, first of all, you get the, you, you know, the intent data comes packaged with it and you can aggregate the, 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 the different signals. So it gives you these, you know, they, they're really good at organizing the different signals around the account. So that's number one. It's very hard to do that manually. And then secondly, is, is that as you run campaigns, you can see the accounts moving through the pipeline or at least through that, you know, through the buyer journey, you know, you can use. Uh, the measurement tools to see w- what was working and what was so they, they've they've got real value in that and frankly the the marketing automation systems don't do that as well so there is real value to it again you can do it manually um, and in fact when I had my own company and we were doing ABM frankly without realizing we were doing hmm. ABM we didn't have any much much of the way of tools cool. and it was working okay you, it's very very hard to scale without one of those platforms That's true. so at what point do you start introducing an SDR into the buying process? Is it very linear or do you start getting involved initially yeah, or when? I love this question. Um, I, I think that uh, the, the, the analogy I use is a very American analogy is, is like the SDRs uh, in, and, and ABM is like peanut butter and jelly. Like they, they go together. Mm-hmm. So you know, think about, you, you know, the, another way to think about the, the, the buying motion is you know, marketing is initially warming up and identifying in market and engaged accounts and who the buyer, who the buyer collective is. At that point, it's then a conversation with the SDRs to say, you know, don't know if these guys are ready yet, but these guys seem to be high intent topics. So you might want to start by doing a bit of social outreach, you know, looking at them on, on LinkedIn and, and figuring out how you're going to engage with them liking their their posts, commenting on their posts, following them, you know, initially, maybe stand mm-hmm. off, don't be, you know, don't be, don't be in too much of a hurry. Um, but yeah. then also, you know, working with them to figure out what are the sorts of things that we can do to get them to put their hand up, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to raise their hands. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's kind of up to the, frankly, it's up to the SDRs to figure out what the, the right timing is to actually do the outreach. Um, How do they decide? A, is it just very intuition-driven? You, know you know, it's it's hard actually. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of it's intuitive. But what we I tell you is interesting thing we found is when, when the SDRs are using intent data, you know, SDRs are working off multiple lists, and if right. everything hopefully is in their CRM, what we found is that when they've got an intent list, they start the day with the intent list. Because they know that those, you know, those are the, where they've got the highest odds. What would, you know, what what we do with them is then train them on, you know. So part of it is routine, and so one of the things that we insist with clients is that, you know, if we're going to work with you on this ABM program, we must have at least one weekly meeting with the SDRs to talk about what are we seeing, you know, who's in market, who's responding, what can we do to help you, what tools do you need. What nurture sequences are helpful to you? Um, hmm. And so, you know, that fostering that collaboration. In fact, you know, I, th- I think the onus is on marketing to be quite assertive in making that collaboration happen. Hmm. Interesting. Well, what exactly gets discussed there, right? How do you help? Do you help them with content? Do you help them with, I don't know, to make connections? Like, 
how do you help from the marketing side of things? Well, there's, the, there's, you know, there's tactical and the strategic. So on the tactical side, it's, yeah, what, you know, what nurture sequences do you, do you need? Um, what content, you know, if you want to try and reach out to them on LinkedIn, is there some content that you could leverage to, to do that? You know, that's the kind of thing which is tactically helping them with specific accounts. And then there's the more strategic stuff. So for example, teaching them, you know, social selling. So we do a co we do quite a lot of coaching on social selling as well, because it's, it's surprising to me how few salespeople really understand how to use LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about some best practices from the social selling coaching. Social that selling? Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's a whole, that's a whole six other podcasts. I'll tell you what I do myself. Sure. Um, yeah. First of all, you know, your, your profile needs to be really well thought through. You know, it needs to, the moment of truth is when you send a, an outreach, it might not even be, a, it, may, it, it may be, you know, could be an email, could be a connection request. Maybe it's commenting that when somebody you're, you're reaching out to checks out your profile, that they see something where, okay, I, I think I might be able to trust this person that this person has something of value for me. And the problem right now on LinkedIn is that it's come to the point where, you know, I, I turn down 90% of the re connection requests I get because it's just somebody who I know is immediately going to try and sell me something I don't need. And, it, and it's probably automated. And so you've got to kind of overcome that. And so your profile is incredibly important because people will check out your profile. So that's step one. And then step two, it's about, you know, how you nurture that relationship. The kind of the, the, what a lot of people are doing is using either automated sequences or sort of program sequences that they might send out themselves. They just don't work well. You know, people kind of know that that's that they're that they're in a sequence. And um, so they don't work as well as they used to. Um, a lot of what, what I find you know, is important is, is that the way that you use content and post that on LinkedIn and share that and then proactively share it with prospects that earns the right to have a community, to have a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And so there's all kinds of different ways of doing that, which is way more than we can so, cover, I think, just this, this podcast. So, at what point do you go and then go to this uh, connection that you've established and then said, hey, I haven't asked, do you need the service or like anything that you wanted to make, right? When do you think? Yeah, I, I, this is, you've got to kind of figure out the right point to push. You know, you, you can't wait the whole way through for them to say, yeah. okay, what do you do? You know, you have to make, you know, so there is a, there is some cadence to it. So, you know, I, I like the some notion of give three things and then make an ask. So share three, three pieces of content and then ask. Mm. The ask mm. might be, hey, we're running an event on XYZ. Would you like to attend? Um, a lot mm. of salespeople are doing podcasts now. Would you like to be on my podcast? I think that's going to wear itself out, by the way. But, but yeah. it is, that's, that's a technique. We're mm. having a private event at this trade show. I'd love you to attend. Would you be interested? It's got to be a respectful thing. The sort of thing which is sort of like, connect, you know, follow, <laughs> follow, connect and pitch doesn't work, doesn't mm. work. Uh, and and, and frankly, is, I wish it would stop because it's ruining LinkedIn. <laughs> hmm. I think it's common sense. I don't know what 
uh, why is it not common right that people yeah. still continue well, to spam I, I think and... i think people are using the same metrics that work with with email which is you send out a million emails you might get three you, know, you, you, you might get 50 responses and so right. you know unfortunately the problem with you know the, the problem with automation is is that and is that it's just scaling it and so it's it's turning linkedin to linkedin is becoming as spammy as email because of that hmm. it is but it's still one of the effective channels nobody knows is, how, yeah. how long and unfortunately it's been ruined it is being ruined right excellent um adam this has been like a fascinating last 45 minutes of conversation love to keep going but um i think we'll call it a day so thank you again for taking time and talking to me so we'll make sure that put all the links that we talked about right so people yes can access. absolutely and if there is how, how can people reach out to you well first of all connect to me on linkedin connect to or follow me uh adam chirinas t-u-r-i-n-a-s uh there's only one of me on linkedin and the company is Health Launchpad. So healthlaunchpad.com. Um, so you can reach out to me there or you can email me at adam at healthlaunchpad.com. Excellent. And thank you so much. It's wonderful talking thank to you. Thank you, Arun. <laughs> Appreciate it. Have a good one.